Welcome to our monthly consciousness book raising club. Tonight we are uh, talking about we need a department of peace, everybody's business, nobody's job. And our mission at the Peace Alliance is to empower civic action toward a culture of peace. We are guided by the five cornerstones of peace, community peace building, humanizing justice systems, fostering international peace, personal peace, and cult of, um, practicing peace in schools. And the five cornerstones are endorsed in the blueprint for peace. And, and when you go to the blueprint for peace, you can click on that and sign it. And it goes to all of your uh, elected officials and lets them know that you want them to vote and bring bills that um, are dedicated to peace building. Uh, that is on our website, peacealliance.org. On the very top, you can uh, see all of the different links for, for um, the five cornerstones of peace, the calendar, or the uh, donation um, hyperlink. And uh, tonight, and of course, we have the Department of Peace Building, which uh, our cornerstones and the blueprint for peace all feed into the Department of Peace Building. And what we're talking about tonight is the history of the Department of Peace Building, which has uh, been with us since the founding of this country. Uh, so I want to start with a quote. Well, first of all, let me ask, who liked the book? <laughs> yeah, me too. Molly, were you able to read it yet? No, um, I, I really appreciate uh, you uh bringing it to the table um i i don't have one and and i i would be interested in reading it but i i i have some questions on the concept of a department of peace okay great yeah uh yeah well i'm glad you're here uh actually karen johnson who's on the call with us tonight brought this to my attention and recommended it for for our reading and i really loved the book also so i want to open with a quote um uh, this is on page 46, if you want to read along. Planning for war has been a major preoccupation of all national governments for many centuries. No useful purpose is served by pretending that planning for war fosters peace. The contrary is the case. You get what you plan for. Many of us are bewildered by the ancient Roman adage, if you wish peace, prepare for war. So anybody want to say anything about that? True. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so uh, aptly put, isn't it? Very succinct and it says so much. I really loved this book. He did that a lot. Okay. Anybody want to share anything before I share another quote? Anybody bring anything they want to share from the book? I just wanted to ask, um, how, how do you envision it would be a department? It would be a department of peace in the in the cabinet. Nancy or Karen or Kendrick, y'all want to answer that? Uh, yes, a cabinet level uh, department with a secretary of peace building, and then it would have some sub offices within the within mm -hmm. that department. Mm -hmm. how, how would it how would it work with the military? 
Um, I mean, I think I I think we'd like to think we would cooperate uh, with them in preventing violence and mm -hmm. also in uh, the roles they have in patching up countries after violence has already happened. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The book actually addresses that really well, and mm -hmm. we'll get into that a little bit more, but but go ahead, Nancy, I don't want to interrupt well, you. I was just going to say if anybody wants to add anything to that. Yeah. So the, the, some of the military people that we have met and talked with about this, they have said that they would really, could really use peace builders. Uh-huh. And I, I think in, um, to prevent wars and to, um, while they're conducting wars actually, because they don't have the training in peace building and they go into a culture that they're not familiar with and a language that they don't speak mm -hmm. and they need help. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's that's good. That's interesting. Yeah. I I wanted to start with the title of the book. Yeah. We Go need a it. Department of Peace, everybody's business, nobody's job. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just think that's very eloquent in itself. Um, we don't. I I think that we think as a nation that um, that the government is what has to promote peace um, between nations. But we have to start at the bottom. All of us have to start at the bottom being peaceful people. And we certainly know in our current culture that we've got so many divisions and so many harms that are not being addressed. There's something on the bottom of page 36 that talks about why this should not be part of the State Department. Uh, it says the considerations to be adduced in support of this view, the view that the Department of Peace could be in the uh, State Department, um, have nothing to do with longstanding and ever mounting criticisms of the State Department. So it's not that the State Department doesn't function well as some people criticize it for. There's a different reason for not having it there. Uh, let's see, did I have the right? Oh yeah. So um, the contention is plausible on the premise that problems of power in world politics can be resolved only by war or by diplomacy. Since the State Department of State and the Foreign Service are charged with the conduct of diplomacy, their purpose might seem to some to be the promotion of peace. This is not the case, has never been the case, and cannot ever be the case because diplomacy is potential war. After all the talks are done, the only thing left is war. 
Hmm. What do y'all think about that? I thought that was pretty profound. Yeah, that page caught my attention too. And um, yeah, the other thing I, I think that point that I've raised over the years that diplomacy is not peace building. And I think in the book there, they also mentioned that diplomacy is looking out for the best interests of our country, that each country is doing that, which right. is different than trying to find um, common ground or, or ways through conflicts. Um, so yeah, just like we've uh, said all through the, this campaign, which, you know, is past this book, but it's um, also very related and very similar to what they're laying out here, uh, that we're not talking about replacing the Department of Defense. We're talking about working with them and, and uh, you know, adding soft power to the toolbox available to our country, uh, both as conflicts arise and, and uh, trying to settle things before it goes to war. And then if it does have to go to war uh, for some reason, then uh, having a better cleanup afterwards that perhaps would not take, not have the hostilities that are inevitable after a war situation, maybe last as long or, or hurt as deeply or, and so forth. So, yeah, I think that was a good point. I mean, I, I imagine people, other people might articulate that a little bit differently, but I don't know that many people would really disagree with the idea that we need a State Department and a Department of Defense and a Department of Peace. Not right. It's not just one of them. We need all three. Yeah. Right. And he also made the point that the um, uh, Secretary of the Department of Peace should be uh, not a not should not be appointed by the State Department and should not answer to the State Department. And they should be the person that is um, our delegate to the UN, not somebody from the State Department. Mm. I thought that was a really good point too. Yeah, what comes up for me in listening to y'all um, talk about these different, that, that I'm gonna ponder on that for a while, the idea that diplomacy is, I, I think in pictures. And so based on what you read, Kathy, I'm seeing diplomacy as being on the same road to war. You know, it's not, I, I don't know that I've ever really thought specifically about that before. So I'm going to spend some time on that. But the uh, Molly, one of the things that um, when someone asked me about the question that you brought up, which is how would this relate to, you know, the Department of Defense or the military, my first answer is that it's both and, not either or. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds, can sound um, maybe a little too simplistic, but I think it, it speaks on a broad scale. It speaks to the simplicity of what we're asking that sometimes mm -hmm. the counter arguments can get all in the weeds about, well, what about this? And what about that? And, and this is going to replace that. And you want to take this from that and do this. And that, that just serves to dilute and make it really challenging to wade through the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's just as simple as it's both and not either, or, you know, we, nobody is saying that we don't necessarily need, I would love to live in a world that does nobody needs a military. I, I'm down for that, but um, but this doesn't have to be, we don't have to wait for that inevitability to talk about how to actively build peace. Mm -hmm. 
I just wanted to add that. Yeah. One of the things that I always think about when we talk about the Secretary of State is that they, the State Department actually has in its toolbox weapons of war. I mean, they trade as, diplom as diplomacy. They trade weapons, weapons of war. Mm -hmm. And that bothers me a lot. Yeah. Yeah, their diplomacy is providing weapons. So okay. there was, I, I got it. There was one interesting passage, um, sort of contrasting well, why we need an actual department or actual energy and people devoted to peace building, contrasted with the huge mechanism we have for war. And uh, they were writing, somebody wrote, we are trying to halt a juggernaut in our spare time with marginal energy and with our own money between sales meetings, trips to the orthodontist, weddings, funerals, lectures, little league, sitting on boards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, quite a job for even the most dedicated volunteer uh, brigade. It's discouraging to remember that on Monday morning, after our March dispenses, thousands of employees will show up in the Pentagon, ready to put in another productive week in the service of the juggernaut, paid for by us. I have to go. Uh, I really appreciate you ladies answering my question. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful uh, evening. Thanks for, thanks for Zooming. Uh, uh, take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for coming, Molly. You know, the other thing I like about the history of the bill, it was um, there's some some uh, controversy about who it, who it was written by, whether it was written only by Benjamin Rush or by Benjamin Rush and Benjamin Banneker. Um, Benjamin, Benjamin Banneker published it. He was an African-American man, mathematician, astronomer, astronomer, um, um, and he had a farm, he was born free, his parents were enslaved. Um, and the other person that was part of this was um, somebody who signed the Declaration of Independence. He was a physician, politician, social reformer, humanitarian educator, and the founder of Dickinson College. So I think that, that the birthing of this um, has some meaning as far as building peace because we've been trying to bring, bring that reconciliation together since the founding of our country, right? So I really love that about it. Yeah, definitely brings a different twist when you think about how difficult those conversations maybe were and getting together and, and writing what needed to be written. Um, at a time where a black person and a white person working together on anything was not well received. Right. And he actually had written, uh, wrote to uh, Thomas Jefferson and they had a correspondence going all the time. And he was trying to understand how Thomas, Thomas Jefferson could say all men were created equal, but had slaves. Yeah. But Thomas Jefferson never really answered the question. And so there's some some archives from from their correspondences. Uh, apparently, there was a fire in his house after he died. So a lot of his stuff. Mm. 
Benjamin Banneker's stuff was lost. Um, but there is some stuff still still saved, which I think would be fascinating to find that and see, you know, find out more. So. Anybody else want to say anything about that original bill and, and those two men getting together? I just wanted to say that um, it was religiously oriented, but um, they also talked about the Secretary of Peace would establish and maintain three schools in the U.S. So that is so back far in our history that we didn't have a school system. And I just think that's great that they, they saw originally that the importance of education and cultivating peace. Yeah. I just thought that was pretty interesting. Right. And somewhere in there, it said that the purpose of that first bill was to educate people about the importance of building peace. So because one of them was an educator, maybe that's, that's they came from that point of view. That is also interesting. They, they talked about um, inspiring veneration of human life and reform of the penal code and uh, some things like that that I don't usually think of that would be talked about way back then. I agree. Isn't that all on the forefront now, though? I mean, yeah. Well, it's interesting that we're still doing all, all the same things, you know. Exactly. Well, somebody, somebody very famous for their sayings said at one at one time that you know lessons will present themselves over and over and over again until we learn them. Yeah. So you know, clearly we we're taking very wee baby steps <laughs> to learn these lessons. Yeah, Hi. for sure. And that, then they talk about military uh, titles should be set aside and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, those two struck me too with um, how uh, just imagining how those thoughts would have been received back then, you know, because it was, you know, like doing away with the, the courts too. And uh, probably not a lot of people were familiar with uh, native cultures that had restorative type practices. Um, and maybe they were and they weren't saying that specifically or, or maybe not, but they just saw, um, you know, without using the word punitive, they're basically saying, let's stop punitive justice. Uh, and yeah, so that's the feel now and it's going back to, uh, Aboriginal and native cultures on how they maintained peace in the world. So in so many ways, that original plan for peace had all the elements needed for peace, you know, the education, you know, the education got a little sidetracked. So instead of educating people on peace, they're <laughs> upset about that. Yeah. <laughs> They could use a little peace school themselves. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, then the school system ended up being primarily to educate people how to to work in factories and, and you know, right. do things for work. It became actually education <laughs> workforce. Just. 
That was strange, a little strange how they, strange to us today, I guess, but maybe not then, uh, where he's talking about sort of the outer trappings of what a, what an office of peace would look like and having the, what does he say? A group of young ladies clad in white robes singing this song, having this painting uh, that represents military interests with human skulls, broken bones, unburied and putrefied dead bodies, houses, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, wow, we didn't write that into our bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How graphic. <laughs> it's yeah. like really very graphic. And uh, obviously the uh, omission of uh, women um, <laughs> in there. So, and the emphasis on Christianity. Christianity. So uh, definitely uh, those times, different, different yeah. times. Yeah, it was interesting to see, see all the Christian themes running through there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the history around that. Yeah. yeah. And and I mean it and you when you look back on the times, like one of the chapters does, you know, going back on some of the, you know, the paintings that he suggested being in <laughs> the apartment for the Department of Peace Building. I you know, when I read this years ago, this stuff didn't stick with me, but now it does. Hey Chase. Sorry about this. Um uh yeah, it does have the elements, you know, like back then there were the conflicts that were alive in the world and he was looking at visioning and having paintings that show, um, you know, kind of represent or are metaphors for these conflicts, conflicts have being resolved and people being in peace, um, or at least coming to the table and being in communication with each other. Uh, and you know so many of these things so christianity was the thing of the day I, I think if if they were writing this now it wouldn't necessarily be about christianity it might be um but it might just you know be more about honoring religions or beliefs and the sanctity of life and the reverence for life because that's we do hear that a lot in the last couple of decades with all the increased shootings it's that we've some groups of society have lost a reverence for life. So that's that's a really key thing. There, there is a little footnote that this certainly sounds like uh, a call to the Buddhists to do no harm and mm -hmm. the vegetarian lifestyle. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was also interesting, the um, 91st Congress in 1970, they had uh, all the co-sponsors listed on page 49 and 50. And um, John Conyers was on there. Remember mm -hmm. John Conyers? Yes, yes. He, signed, he was signed onto the bill every time we, every time we, we brought it forward, forward. Right. Okay, so who wants, who wants to bring something else up before I move to the next thing? Well, I just wanted to chime in on the, the building um, because I never have really thought about what, what the building would be like for the Department of Peace building. And we have some very imaginative buildings in DC. So how would that be? I, I remember that at the Native American Museum, Nancy, they had the circle Mm -hmm. 
they had a circular room and a, and a circle around the fireplace. And uh, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm just imagining what we could do today to create um, an atmosphere of peace and reconciliation in the department. We could combine um, the Native American Museum and USIP that has the dove on top and all that. Uh, uh, somebody's joined. Oh, it looks like they're still connecting to audio. Warrior Kings. I know. I, I actually think this is my partner. <laughs> is he a Warrior my, King? That's what he calls himself. Uh oh. That is <laughs> So it's funny that he's trying to connect. Yeah. On page um, 25, he talks about World War III, if we permit it to come, will not produce something similar to a Pax Romana. It'll produce two or more Carthages, you know, destruction. Mm -hmm. And he's, he proposes peace would come if we could establish some semblance of a world government um, but, but fears that countries don't want this, and this is accurate, we hear this today, because they'll lose their sovereignty. But I saw this movie Arrival, uh, uh, Aliens Landed Here. Did anybody see that? That is one of my all-time favorite yeah. movies. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. So, yeah. So they came here to teach us they said, because we, they were gonna need us in 3000 years. And what they taught us was for all, the, the, the uh, spaceships were in 12 different locations around the world. And some of the countries were ready to go to war with the spaceships, right? Typical uh, um, human, human response, our human, your, not our typical response, but typical, you know, the way to solve it is war response. Um, well, uh, the linguist that was talking to the aliens um, had some kind of, uh, can you can you speak to what, what she had? Was it like she was seeing the future and the past also time was like um, not separate for her because of the gift they gave her? Yeah, I, I don't want to give too much away. If you all haven't seen the movie, I highly recommend it. Um, yeah. Amy Adams is the main character or actress that plays the main character and um, yeah, she she's having flashes. And when you're watching it as a as an observer, you don't know if what she's watching or what she's seeing is the future or the past. And um, and yeah, they, they show up in 12 different places around the world. And and every, the humans start by talking to each other. But then they, that quickly devolves into, you know, we're not going to talk to each other because we have to, you know, everybody went to their silos and. Um, it's really fascinating because what they do, she's a linguist. And so the, the, the military hire brings her in to try to learn how to talk to these beings. So mm -hmm. she's trying to approach them from a linguistic, linguistic standpoint and trying to figure out what their language is. And yes, they do give her a gift and, um, and it is the gift of, of sight so that she can see the future and know that um, and they do eventually say, you know, we're going to need you in 3000 years. So we need you to survive right now. We're going to give you this gift of the future so that you can survive so that when we need you, you'll be around. 
Right. But it's just the concept of this to talk about taking a, you know, a hundred thousand foot view of how to help each other intergalactically. It's, it's a beautiful movie. Right. You know? And the, the point um, that I got out of it was that everybody had to, everybody on earth had to cooperate. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, China was involved. Russia was involved. India was involved. The U S was involved. And to get through this crisis, we all had to cooperate. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so that was beautiful. And it, it's, wasn't exactly a world government, right? But it um, it was in the sense that the United States is made up of, of a bunch of states, right? So what if the world was made up of a bunch of countries just like, and they have to get along just like the United States gets along, right? We don't yep. go to war with each other. We don't want to go to war with each other. Most of us don't want to. Um, so that was the concept. And that's what I see him talking about here. It's like, if we could do that uh, in our world, uh, that would help us, but too many people are afraid of this one world government. There's a lot of stuff floating around about that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure it's, you know, intentional people that don't want that plant that stuff, you know, those ideas, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's macro view versus micro view. I mean, we've talked a little bit about what if we could find a local or state level, um, uh, what if we could find a group of folks at a local or state level that would be willing to start a whatever level Department of Peace um, at the state or local level and see how it would work at the micro level so that then we could expand it to the macro, you know? Um, and if anyone's listening to this podcast afterwards and has an idea about a state or a local government that would be willing to do that, please contact Peace Alliance. <laughs> <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, it, that's how we learn, right, is by seeing it in a small version so that then we can imagine what the bigger would be would be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a way, that's what the European alliance is like. Yeah, European. Mm-hmm. And, Definitely. And people are struggling. They're totally struggling. And, and, and... You mean because of Brexit? Well, no, that's one solution was they broke apart. But right now, with the economies in in all of the different countries, they're trying to deal with climate change and the economy, but everyone's economy is different. Mm -hmm. Every nation's economy is different. And so they're really struggling to how to how do they meet the needs of all these different countries, but but that's kind of like what we aspire to, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. I understand. Um, well, all of the nations in Europe are are governed as one but they all are like states in our United States. Right. And yet they're trying to make decisions for the, the common government is trying to make decisions for all of the states that meet the needs of all of the states. And that's very difficult. True. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess if peace were easy, we would, wouldn't be still talking through almost 400 years later about a Department of Peace. Yeah. And the United yeah. Nations, I think, was formed to attempt to be that. And there's all kinds of things written in the charter about sovereignty of the nations. Mm -hmm. um, and so that really was the intention. But then even that people have concerns or so forth. So but you know, it's, we still have a lot of um, looking out for own interests rather than shared interests. So I think we're, you know, we're at a place on the planet right now where our survival is hinging on us really coming together around our, our shared interests um, with the, the planet. So yeah, but it's, it's neat to see that even without as strong of a global perspective back there, it's all the same thing because it's human nature. We're creating all of this um, and they were laying a blueprint for how do we create peace instead of war over and over again. And I, it was interesting, their um, definition of war was 3,000 or more people dying because of something. So it wasn't necessarily a declaration of war, just like I think that was kind of comes into play with when they're talking about diplomacy, that it it might not look like a war the way we think of it, but if people are using different diplomatic means um, that there could be ongoing death in a region while they're trying to come up with a dip diplomatic solution rather than a peace building solution. So, yeah, yeah, I was very heartened by this, that in a way, you know, we still have to have people be interested in, in the essence of it, <clears throat> but that I kind of just reinforced that we have the basics of it in the current bill that this is all about human nature. It, the, you know, the elements may change over time, but it's the same dynamic we're dealing with, um, you know, what we tend to do and, and how can we change that tendency? Um, how do we see that it's in our best interest to change certain tendencies? Right. That one statement well, right at the very beginning of the book mm -hmm. was interesting. Um, he, he really distilled it down to, um, he says, the central argument is simply that peace is not only morally right, but it is a practical necessity. Yeah. And you can think of that on so many levels, why it's a practical necessity. Right. Right. Yeah. And he also mentioned that the reason we don't have it is because war is so profitable. But then in, in the end of the book, he says that at the beginning in the end of the book, he talks about how costly violence in war is. Right. Mm -hmm. Like reversing global warning, warming. If we had done that many, many years ago, we wouldn't be where we are now. We were talking about local um, departments of peace and um, one of them I know about, I don't wanna say which one, um, is, is experiencing um, just all the problems of human nature, which is like each nonprofit is sort of its own little fiefdom and trying to figure out how how we come together as one without feeling threatened, like by the whole idea of 
states being dissolved or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's all, it is all tied in with the personal peace level to personal community, you know, state, right. international, all of that, of course, they're all tied right. in together. Absolutely. Well, and, and not to bring in another, you know, evil ism, but capitalism, I don't know. I mean, I, I've heard a, a few folks tonight mention human nature and I'm not sure it is human nature. I think it's, I think it's something we're taught, you know, and, and the, I, 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 you know, I feel like capitalism has a lot to do with that because it is so exclusionary. It's all about, you know, it's a zero sum game. It's all about what I have is directly connected to what you don't have. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's human nature. I'd like to think it's not. I'd like to think it's learned behavior from generations and generations and generations of doing it the same way over and over. And, um, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot, I've been binge watching um, Star Trek uh, Discovery. Mm -hmm. And I was never an original Trekkie. Uh, I didn't get into the original series, but <laughs> Next Generation... Next generation was my jam. And, and I, you know, the, the lessons, Gene Rodberry was so far ahead of his time and the lessons of, of how, you know, and I'm watching discovery and I'm thinking, you know, these are galaxies that are learning how to work together, but they have similar challenges with worlds coming together, immensely diverse cultures and rituals and customs and belief systems. And yet they all know that they have to work together for their greater good of the galaxy. And, um, you know, again, another macro level, but, um, you know, I think we always have our, and there's a lot of them in there that aren't human. So maybe it's not human nature. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> Yeah. We're well, talking about the generation what, here. I know. <laughs> what, what you're saying is human nature. You know, like, I don't think war is human nature, but there are, um, you know, one of the things that he points out <coughs> that sometimes leads to violence is jealousies. So <coughs> we certainly have the the span of human emotions, but it's it's what we we do with those emotions. Like I always think of the book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Mm. And that really just really changed my perspective that it is within human nature. If a group has been oppressed as they're rising up um, and liberating themselves, they will have a tendency or a desire to want to oppress either the group that oppressed them or another group that might be more easily for them to oppress. And we can see this throughout history. So the author of that book was working in South America um, in trying to, you know, liberate and and <clears throat> um, empower a group of people out of oppression. Uh, and so education around that at the time, you can keep people. And I think it's when I read different stories about Martin Luther King, he operated in that way when people would uh, like example a story about some people not uh, being a big fan of uh, Bobby Kennedy and him saying, well, we're not going to leave this room until somebody, everybody finds something good to say about the man because they, they wanted him to be speaking for them more than he was. 
So it's, uh, there are some things in human nature that we can educate ourselves about and understand our tendencies, just like um, the phrase hurt people hurt people. If you know that somebody has hurt you and your tendency might be to hurt back, you can stop and look at that and heal and not hurt back. So um, I don't think violence is inevitable like a lot of people think, but there are some things that we can be proactive about rather than knee jerk around and that are part of human nature to some extent. I have one more topic I'm gonna introduce and then we'll close the call. Um, this is on page 49 and this is the crux of where we are at this time given the long record of the past it must by now be clear that a department of peace will come into being only if an overwhelming majority of american citizens of all parties all creeds all classes all races and all sections make abundantly clear to their elective spokesmen in Washington that they are resolved that this new departure should be undertaken. Without such a, a public demand, nothing can be accomplished. And I would beg to differ with that. Um, everybody in this, the majority of people in this country want gun reform, uh, want a lot of things, and we can't get it because of gerrymandering, dark money in politics, the landscape has changed so much. So the question is, how do we become effective at this point with politics as they are today? How do we use our time wisely? How do we get creative? How do we not do the same things over again that aren't working? Which is which we're all, you know, kind of looking at that in our organization anyway, right? So that's that's the point I'm at right now. Is uh, elected officials aren't listening to us of the 430 35 districts or 36, I forget, only 40 are competitive. The rest are very sure bets that the candidate that uh, the, the um, district has been gerrymandered to favor is going to get that, win that election. So those representatives don't care what I have to say. Their, their election is locked in. So that's the, the, the $20 million question for me. How are we going to be effective at this time in politics? I think that ties in with the fact that I think it's so interesting that not all that long ago, a lot of the bills, incarnations of the bills were bipartisan. And there's yeah. no way today, right now, we're there. I know. And that's, that's sad. It's really sad. Yeah. <clears throat> in fact, in the book, he talks about in the 60s, there was nobody in Congress that opposed the bill. They weren't on all, all on it, but they weren't criticizing it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, things have definitely changed. I think that's why I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot and talking a lot about um, empowering the electorate. Um, and, and I know that that there are there are pitfalls to that, as you just um, as you just uh, articulated, Kathy. That you know we have gerrymandered districts and we have things of that nature. But I wonder if I wonder if the gerrymandered districts are only fully gerrymandered. 
I, I wonder if absolutely everyone in that district actually showed up to vote. Everybody that was of voting age and was and had you know and got themselves registered to vote and actually showed up to vote, whether or not that district could flip different than what the gerrymandering set it up to be. Um, and so, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, maybe the districts are so heavily gerrymandered because our electorate um, feels disempowered and disenfranchised to be able to show up. Um, so that's why I'm I'm thinking a lot about the 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 one caveat or the one um, bulk of of movable body that we haven't seemed to really fully engage yet at the level to which it could be engaged is the is the electorate um you know if if everybody did that was of voting age and and could vote without any other you know laws or whatever that stopped them from voting um were able to come and cast a vote what you know how could that change could we actually could we affect the change that we want? Could we get the people in office that will actually listen to us and turn the tides back to a movable functioning government as we you know, knew it to be at one time? Right, right, yeah. I so think there was minutes. a massive effort um, in the last election. There was a massive effort. Um, and we had the highest turnout that we've had in a hundred years. Yeah. And, and it works. It does work. Yeah. It does work. Um, you know, and I, somebody said, I think it was Bishop Barber uh, with the Poor People's Campaign said to me one time, and it's never left me, he said, um, and he may not have been the first person that said this, but I heard it from him. He said, uh, they wouldn't be trying to stop you from voting so much if your vote didn't matter. Exactly. And, I, and I had never thought about it that way before. I had one of those light bulb moments um, you know, if it wasn't important, they wouldn't be working so hard to stop it from happening. Exactly. I mean, I don't think right, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, close the call. Uh, I'm going to read a quote and then I'd like each of you to spend a minute saying whatever you'd like to say to feel complete. This is on page 42. Man's method of dealing with difficulty in the past has always been to tell everyone else how they should behave. We've all been doing that for centuries. It should be clear by now that this no longer does any good. Everybody has by now been told by everybody else how they should behave. Therefore, everybody knows how everybody else thinks he should behave. The criticism is not effective. It never has been and it is never going to be. There is only one telling that is effective are telling ourselves how to behave. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. To find out about all of our programs, go to our calendar, www.peacealliance.org. Look at the top right-hand corner, you will see the calendar uh, link to click on. Uh, we send one email a week on Mondays to let you know the upcoming events for that week. If you love and benefit from our programs we offer, consider donating. We are a small nonprofit and appreciate donations of any size. In particular, we appreciate monthly donors so that we can continue to support these kinds of programs with sustainable income. 
We currently have a goal of raising $20,000 and enrolling 22 monthly donors. You can go to peacealliance.org and in the top right-hand corner, you will see the donate button. If you miss any of our calls, you can listen to them on our Peace On podcast. See the link in, in, um, on the uh, homepage to get to our Peace On podcast. And you can share this with Facebook and other friends that you have. You can like us on Facebook if you haven't already. Uh, and just search for the Peace Alliance on Facebook. So thank you for joining us. We hope that it inspires you to engage in dialogue in your larger community. Peace On is brought to you by the Peace Alliance, found at peacealliance.org.